A dear uh, lady in our congregation, uh, Miss Jean Harchie, um, has been a wonderful preaching coach for me um, because, uh, amen, thank you, uh, because she always tells me, you know, you need to slow down, you know, and um, it's not true, is it? I think it's true. Um, and it's, it's hard to, uh, you can take the boy out of Indiana, but you can't take the Hoosier out of the boy, you know, and um, it's not that people from Indiana, we have a lot to say. It's just we just don't like talking that much for, you know, for very long. We're trying to get it out as quickly as we possibly can. And, uh, but I will do my best, Miss Jean, to slow down as best as I can. Um, she said something very profound once. She said, when you're praying, remember, you're praying on behalf of us to God. And therefore, it's very important um, that I hear what you're saying. And, uh, and hopefully, uh, this, uh, this text from the Bible, um, this sermon this morning draws us closer to God that this is for you all, um, as well as for myself, um, that we might glorify God better with our lives, that we might see God more clearly um, in all things that we do. So I will do my best to slow down um, for your behalf. Um, we will turn in our Bibles to uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 26, and we'll be in two different passages in Matthew 26, and we'll read these passages first, and then we'll pray. We'll be in uh, verses 31 through 35. Actually, we'll start in verse 30 through 35. In Matthew 26, then we'll skip over um, to verse 69 and read through 75 there as well. Uh, There is no sermon outline this week, in case you're looking for that. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he, being Peter, denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a while, while the bystanders came up and and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let us pray. God, all of our right answers, all of our strength, all of our righteousness, all of our boldness, all of our courage that we gather apart from your Holy Spirit is as filthy rags. God, draw us to your word now and to your throne by your Holy Spirit and by your power, for you are the only God. You are the only one who can give us the power to come to you, to live for you, to walk with you. 
God, as such, now may you take away any um, wise words of my own, God, any worldly wise words of my own, God, any, um, any winsomeness of my own, God, God, and replace it with what you would have me to say. God, draw near to us now. God, you love us well. We say this in your son's name. Amen. We have here an account um, of Jesus um, knowing that he's about to go to the cross, knowing that he's about to be crucified, um, an innocent man, knowing that he's about to die on our behalf, and um, knowing that that God uh, the Father um, is going to place the sins of his people upon him, and also saying here that he knows that his friends will betray him as well at the moment when he could most use his friends. And Peter, being Peter, um, says, Never, though, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. First of all, I wonder how that statement sat in the group. If I don't know if he pulled Jesus off to the side or if he said that in front of everybody or how that went over. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And, and what does Peter do? Peter doesn't say, well, okay. You know, Peter doesn't say, well, maybe you're right. He makes it even, even a stronger statement and says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And at that point, um, I guess beyond, behind the, uh, the courage um, of Peter, the other disciples um, gather the courage and they say that they will, they will all do the same. And I can imagine in Jesus' voice, this isn't one of those, like, gotcha sort of moments, you know? This isn't Jesus, there's no sarcasm, there's no, yeah, I know it and you don't. I can, you know, there's, there's got to be a sense of, of brokenness and sorrow in Jesus' voice as he's telling Peter this. As Peter thinks that he's got it all figured out, as Peter, the quintessential answer man, thinks he's got it all figured out. And, and Jesus is saying, you're, you're not what you think you are. You're not what you think you are. And Peter, and Peter thinks he is. Peter just makes the statement even stronger. And I can, I can hear almost the sorrow in Jesus' voice, foreshadowing what it is that Peter is about to do. For me, this is a rather surprising um, and depressing account of the seemingly most courageous of the apostles turning into the biggest coward that we find yet in the face of a servant girl. In a matter of one chapter, in a matter of hours, Peter goes from strong statements of courage to swearing and taking oaths that he never knew who Jesus was when confronted with a servant girl. As an aside here, um, it's been said that part of why we trust the Bible as being faithful in its accounts is that it never does much to esteem the writers to us. Um, it's, you're hard-pressed to find someone besides God himself in the Bible who we really get just a really good picture of as far as being just a great person. Um, and Peter is another one of those guys that we always are consistently seeing the apostles, um, the writers in Scripture. Um, we're consistently seeing them at their worst. And this is us seeing Peter really um, at his worst. We see him here as a liar and a coward. We see him as somebody who, without the anointing of the Holy Spirit, yet on this point of his life, um, who's really just messing up. 
And it's a wonderful testament to the Bible that the Bible is not concerned um, with making you think well of the early um, church fathers per se. It's concerned about making you think greatly of God and God alone. We don't find here a prophet Muhammad for us to venerate. We find here instead cowardly, loudmouthed, brash Peter. The Bible makes it very clear. The biblical writers make it very clear. The Holy Spirit, therefore, makes it very clear that everybody needs the forgiving work of Jesus Christ. And that these men are only trustworthy because they were anointed by God. And I personally find that to be a very interesting thing. You're going to be very hard-pressed to go back in the Bible and find a lot of just great, great people, if any, for that matter. I think even that news, though, still makes this really hard to swallow. I think there's still a part of us that, uh, that wants to look at someone like Peter and just wants him to get it right just once in the gospel accounts. We want him to get it right. Why? Because we want to make ourselves, we want to say that we can at least be like Peter. Like, if we can't be like God, if we can't be like Jesus, maybe at least this man can get it right so that we can be more something like him. And so we kind of root for these biblical characters to get these things right. And I think that's the very reason why the Bible is consistently giving us accounts of them getting it wrong. So that we would never consider the Bible to be a moral book where we can just look up really good heroes and try to be just like those heroes. But instead, it shows us they're not the kind of people you want to be like. You need to be forgiven by Jesus Christ and try to be like Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the only aim in your life, not to be like Peter, as if that's a good thing. Because someone like me, obviously, anyways, finds out that whenever somebody says, you're, you're a lot like Peter, that's never a compliment. You ever notice that? That that's just what you say to the loudmouth people in your church? You know, you, you know, you can find someone to relate to in the Bible that's a lot like, you know, you're a lot like Peter. Oh, thanks. You know, and then, and then I realized later on, they're just telling me to be quiet. That's all they're really doing, because I keep putting my foot in my mouth. So let's look at what happened here to Peter. Look at how he goes from... From, from these, these, these courageous statements to a very cowardly reality. Um, as an analogy, my, my father, as many of you know, um, was a martial arts instructor. Um, and so I um, took martial arts growing up. I took jiu-jitsu and, um, and Okinawan karate and, um, and uh, was, was um, never that fond of it, but I did it for several years of my life. And um, there's a statement... Um, in the fighting world, that goes something like this, that everybody in the world wants to be a fighter until they get punched in the face. And then all of a sudden, it's not so great to be a fighter anymore. And I was certainly one of those fighters. I, uh, I loved training. I loved doing the moves. I loved practicing. I loved learning. Um, Jiu-jitsu was a lot of grappling and locks and holds. And I loved learning how to, you know, how to choke someone when they're just laying there letting me. I loved learning how to throw someone when they would just let me throw them and and learning how to throw punching kicks when they're just standing there with pads or with a nose, and, and, and they're just wanting you to kind of go after them. Um, but then I would have to spar with my brother. And if you know anything about my brother, my brother is, uh, we look nothing alike. Uh, my brother is about uh, 5'11 or so, and at the time he weighed about 135 pounds, and he had one of those Bruce Lee-type bodies, if you remember Bruce Lee, just the small, tight little muscles, and he was a fantastic fighter. And... Um, and so my dad would make me spar against my brother in class, and my brother would always knock me right on the nose. Like, first thing, he would just slip a little punch through and hit me right, and just bat me right on the nose. And that was it. All of my technique, 
everything I thought I knew um, <laughs> just went out the window. Why? Because I didn't know how to react. Because just because I knew the techniques, just because I knew the right answers, just because I knew um, how to do an appropriate, you know, Morote Sionagi throw meant nothing as soon as I got hit in the nose. That maybe I was a good student, but I was certainly not a good martial artist. And I was certainly not a good fighter. As such, Peter, being astute enough to reproduce correct answers, does not make him a real righteous man. What Peter says in the company of Jesus and in front of the disciples is one thing. And it's a completely different thing to have to say that in front of his accusers. See, maybe we find ourselves saying things like this. You know, I've heard this a lot in youth ministry um, where, where people will say, you know, you know, Joe, I, I know all the right answers. I've grown up in church. I know all the right answers, but I just feel so distant from God. You know, I know all the right answers. As if, as if knowing right answers is the epitome of the Christian faith. As if being able to sit inside a classroom and reproduce right answers is the epitome of our faith. And as if those right answers earn us something in God's eyes. As if all God ever wanted from us was to say the right things at the right time. It occurred to me a couple of years after hearing, I know all the right answers, but but God just doesn't want to draw near to me. No, you, you really don't know the right answers. You can reproduce the right answers, but you have no idea what they mean. You see, in mimicking techniques and mimicking answers... And understanding them enough to apply them when it matters are two completely different things. Except as Christians, we face an issue because Christianity, glorifying God, is not the martial arts. You see, some people are just born kind of good at martial arts. My brother was like that. My brother was just a prodigy. He was just really good at it. But nobody is a Christianity prodigy. No, instead, it is only the power of the Holy Spirit who can take us from being courageous in classrooms, bold in classrooms, to living a bold, courageous, radical faith, evident and visible and powerful and supernatural to the outside world. And to this point, Peter doesn't get it. And with that in mind, I want us to notice a few things here um, to help us understand this a little bit better. First, God is the hero of Peter's story and is the primary character in Peter's life. And this is also true for your life. That in order for us to understand um, the difference that occurs in Peter's life between here and the account in Acts 2 that we're going to look at here in a second where he is very bold and courageous, it's important for us to understand that God is the hero in this story, not Peter. This is not a story about Peter eventually figuring it out. It's a story about a God of power who gave us his Holy Spirit to live better. 
And not just to live better, but to acknowledge our failures before God. To express our need of forgiveness, first of all, before we can live lives of righteousness. Secondly, this encounter with failure was a very good thing for Peter. That if you think you have it figured out, if you think you have some righteousness with which you think to yourself, well, God could really use me in this area. You know what I'm saying? Well, God could really use me there. You know, God really wants me there. That's the exact area that God is going to go after. That God is after our self-righteousness to the point of embarrassing us, humiliating us, and humbling us at the very point where we think we have it most figured out. And here's a terrifying thing. If you dwell in constant self-righteousness and God isn't doing anything about that, be concerned. Be very concerned about that. If you can look back into the testimony of your life and think to yourself, God has never come after me. Remember the passage that says this, that the Lord chastises his own. And maybe we need to repent of our self-righteousness for the first time. Lay it before the feet of Jesus Christ for the first time. So that a loving God can chastise us for it the rest of the times throughout the rest of our lives. I know for myself, there are things that I know that I do very poorly. And there are things that I know that I, that I, that I think I can do very well. Um, I don't know that anybody else agrees with that. But, um, um, but, but there are things that I think to myself, man, I, I'm going to knock that out of the park. You know, that's right up my alley. And it's a wonderfully humbling thing whenever you think you're going to knock it out of the park. And God says, no, you're not. (laughs) Not this time. Not this time. Instead, God says, I will come after your self-righteousness and I will show you your need of me. I will show you greater things When you walk inside the power of my Holy Spirit. You see, Christianity is not a religion about reproducing answers. But a religion of God providing an answer to our need of reconciliation. Our obedience to him, therefore, is one of following him into situations where we cannot sustain ourselves apart from the work of his Holy Spirit. Our obedience is God placing us in situations where it is more than we can handle. And only being able to handle it because God himself has empowered us to do so. You know, God will never give you anything. uh, You know, you hear that a lot. God will never give you anything more than you can handle. Certainly he will. We can rephrase that to this. God will never give you anything more than he can handle through you. That that point of desperation, where we're no longer making oaths and proclamations to God, where we're no longer telling God about how great we are and all the great things that we're going to do in his namesake, and we simply say, God, your will be done with my life. is the moment where God begins to truly use us and truly make us a part of his work in this world. 
Let's turn over to Acts 2. I think this is a, a very poignant uh, thing that occurs here, um, where, uh, where Peter the coward is given the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see here a very different uh, result. This is uh, 14 or 15 verses here, so do bear with me as I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read this word for word because what the Bible says is substantially of more interest than what I have to say about it. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? I'm about to butcher a bunch of of place names here, I'm sorry. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And then he begins to preach a wonderful sermon to these Jews that they could hear in their own languages because God gave him the gift of being able to speak in tongues in foreign languages. And the amazing thing here is that in the midst of all of, all of these Jews that have, that have assembled here, people that um, maybe had intimidated Peter in the past, people that will um, intimidate Peter again, um, later on in the book of Acts, he becomes intimidated once again by them, his own countrymen. Here, he is filled with the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Holy Spirit, And even though they give him an excuse to get out of it, Peter shuts down the excuse and utters the word of God. You see, I feel like there's a direct correlation here between what God is doing in Peter's life here and the account that we receive in the Gospels that we're supposed to make note of, that the Holy Spirit is the difference in Peter's life. It is not simply about the fact that Peter went back into training to handle it the second time. It is about the fact that proclaiming the true word of God as people who are born unrighteous is too much for us to handle. And the only way that we can do it is through the supernatural power of God. That the, that the righteous life that we're called to, the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, exceeds that of the Pharisees only because the power of God gives us strength to do things that mere mortals can't do. Namely, understand and truly proclaim the word of God. That's beyond us, above us, too much for us, 
and only capable because God allows it. Yes, that is the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. The very righteousness, the very power of God himself. Peter says, these people are not drunk. You can imagine that scene. (laughs) As if somehow being drunk causes you to speak in foreign languages. Um, I've never been around that kind of alcohol before in my life. Um, Peter says, these men are not drunk. It's like 9 o'clock in the morning. And then truthfully proclaims the word of God. You know, sometimes I'm afraid that in PCA churches, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough. Sometimes I'm a bit concerned if I may say this, and if my courage wouldn't fail me, that we spend a lot of time making ourselves making our children believe that if we just know more stuff, then maybe we don't need Jesus as much as other people do. Instead of understanding what a wonderful grace and mercy it is to know anything about God, and for that to be our motivating cause, instead of admonishing one another, exhorting one another to continual constant repentance and a return to the almighty power of an almighty God. And I think when we enter into our Sunday school classes with a sense of awe and wonder that these things are too great for us and that we only understand that because Jesus Christ died on the cross to bear the penalty of our sins and to make us right with God. When we go in to Sunday school with that sense of wonder and all, that's when we really begin learning things. When we stop becoming just concerned with regurgitating correct answers and then wondering where the power of God is at, and we move from right answers to real knowledge, real relationship, that comes from real heartfelt repentance and real worship and the real glorifying of a wonderful God. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between the two? It means, therefore, repenting as we come to the communion table of any and all self-righteousness. As if the greatest achievement of mere mortals would ever impress a holy God. It means repenting of only finding safe situations where we think we're going to thrive. It means repenting of being terrified that God would ever expose our weakness, our cowardice, 
It means that we stop telling God what to do this morning at this table and we say, not my will, but your will be done. And if that means we get to look like a church full of bumbling fools, we will be bumbling fools who know the Lord. If we look like a church full of weak, constantly apologizing, constantly repenting Christians, isn't that what we're here for? Does that surprise you that you would come to a church and find a bunch of weak people? What a mighty and wonderful and powerful God we serve who still interacts with cowards like Peter (laughs) because he interacts with us. And he still fills them with the power of the Holy Spirit. To this very day, he still makes them righteous to this very day as he will throughout all eternity. Let us pray. God, may it be so, God, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, cause us to repent. God, of our own self-righteousness, of being answer men and answer women, God, and being people who know you and love you instead. God, by the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, lift us up to places God, that we could never attain otherwise. Let me say this in your son's name. Amen.